Hey, uh, you, those of you that have been around a while, you know that we've been preaching a series called Stories Jesus Told. So we've preached through a whole bunch of parables. We still have about three left, as I count, that we haven't preached on lately. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, the story of the good Samaritan, and then a fascinating story about servants that get beat heavy and light. So that'll be an interesting one. Um, so we'll be covering those in the next few months. Next week, Carl is preaching again. I'm really excited about that. Carl does an amazing job. And this morning, I'm really excited uh, to hear the gospel according to Vance. I mean, years ago, we even did a series called that. Someone said that sounded cheesy, but I think it's a great title. And uh, one of the stories that Jesus is telling is the story of Vance Bicknell. And look, there he is on the stage. That's so amazing. Um, and Vance, you know, has uh, shared a little bit in the past. I got to hear what he was sharing last night, and then we've been talking about it during the week. It's just uh, wonderful stuff that I hope you find really encouraging. And is that much better because it's not just good, uh, good knowledge and wisdom to have, but it's Vance's story, and you know Vance, and you're part of his story. Vance is moving to Africa here in, when? In like a couple weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. So yeah, I thought, well, that's a good, you could just drop a bomb on everybody and then move to Africa. Wish I could do that after I preach a sermon, but, but this is great stuff. So anyway, let's pray for Vance, and um, then we'll, you can take it away. All right? Father, thank you so very much for Vance. Lord, I thank you also for Beth, who's uh, back for a while, and both of them will be in in Tanzania. Lord, we pray your blessings on them as they prepare for the trip. And um, Lord, uh, uh, th that life uh, in Africa. Thanks, Lord, for your gospel in Vance. I thank you for his heart. I thank you for his honesty. I thank you for his story. And Lord God, I pray that you would help us to hear what you are having to say to each of us, because I imagine for many of us, it's very similar of just what you've been saying to Vance. And for all of us, it's what you say to Vance, and that is, I love you. So uh, Jesus, thank you for um, being the very word of the Father spoken into our hearts. So may that happen this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Peter. And good morning, everybody. I'm really excited to be here. I asked to give this sermon uh, before I leave. It's been brewing on my mind for several years. What it is, is my story. And so my chance to give you this sermon today uh, is a chance for me to write my story down and to process and kind of make sense out of the last 20 years of my life. And because God is God and Jesus Christ is the savior of the world and, and that means the people in the world and that's pretty inclusive and God ordained Christ in you and in me. My story is your story, and your story is my story. And all of our stories lead to an end at the foot of the cross, which becomes God's story. So I invite you to consider that this sermon is about you. One warm spring night in Greeley, Colorado, 21 and a half years ago, I was out aimlessly walking around the streets. I was a senior in college, about to graduate with a degree in English, and very little idea what I wanted to do with my life, which is probably why I majored in English in the first place. For me, college was a time of searching and seeking answers to the big questions like, who am I and what am I doing here? I obsessed over philosophy and religion and 
mythology, anything that would give some answers and speak to the emptiness and confusion in and around me. I was desperately looking for something that made sense and could not only satisfy my intellectual need for logic, but my emotional and psychological need for peace. I read books on everything from ancient Chinese mysticism to German transcendentalism and existentialism. It was an unbalanced obsession. It was a rabbit trail that never ended. And all the searching and reading and talking and thinking I did, it only led me deeper and deeper into an anxiety that I wasn't finding answers and a depression that made me want to give up. Some days I'd close myself off in my room all day with the lights out, listening to brooding grand Russian orchestral symphonies by Rachmaninoff and sit and groan in nihilistic despair. Other times I'd stay up all night having great deep conversations with groups of interesting people, all of us uh, seeking the questions of life in our own way. And it was from this group that a friendship began to deepen. My friend and I would spend hours talking poetry, philosophy, history, and on occasion he would bring up the Bible. I remember the first time he told me that he believed the Bible was written by God and I asked how somebody as intelligent as he was could believe that. I mean, the Bible is so full of contradictions. His response was that the Bible is not full of contradictions. That in fact, there were no contradictions in the original text he said, if there seems to be an inconsistency, it's only because we don't understand it. Maybe the text was changed. Maybe there's some cultural idiom that we don't understand. But the problem is with us and not with the Bible, which he said was perfect. Of course, I was way too smart for that. And he could never convince me through an argument. Ultimately, it was our friendship and the connection we built that led me to believe and accept as he did. I went to a house church with him. I read some books and in short order, I was sold. So on that spring night in Greeley, as I was walking through the streets, I thought about the years of questioning, philosophizing and the meaninglessness of it all. And in my head was ringing the story of Moses that my friend had shared with me. Moses was out walking in the desert and he came across a bush that was on fire, but the bush wasn't consumed. And as Moses approached, he heard a voice that said, Moses, take off your shoes for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moses believed the word he received and he took off his shoes. Moses believed by acting the true meaning of faith. It's an action. The internal decision to believe the word he received and the external act of carrying it out were one and the same. And so that night as I walked, I talked with God and I told him that I was his man, that I was committed. And because he took me out of the pit of myself and I had seen the full spectrum of human experience washed out in existential dread, but because he was beginning to open my eyes to his truth in scripture and to touch my soul with his warmth. I would never doubt him or his word. And as a symbol of my commitment to him, I took off my shoes and I walked barefooted. And if that sounds to you like it was 
a great end to a terrible time and a beginning of something new and wonderful. Let me set that straight. God was working and he was bringing peace and a mission into my life, which I hadn't known before. But at the same time, my faith was very closely tied to a narrow reading of scripture and the belief that this collection of sacred writings well, was kind of like an owner's manual. That it would answer all of my questions about life and it would never let me down. And that there would never be any inconsistencies anywhere throughout this book. Ever. In fact, if one jot or tittle of scripture didn't jive with another, the entire Bible, faith and Christian community became nullified and meaningless. It was a fragile faith, an extreme position. And I accepted it without even realizing that when I judged scripture as perfect, it was with an imperfect idea of perfection. Looking back now, I recognize that what I was doing was building an idol. It was a, a sneaky, subtle idol that wore a mask of godliness. I created an idol out of scripture and I based my faith on it and I used it for control. So my faith from the beginning was insecure. And yes, I became protective and adamant and ideological, even breaking friendships over disagreements. But I was committed to this idea. And my only desire was to follow and serve God. I believed my calling was to study scripture and then later to teach it. So I followed my natural instincts and moved to the mountains to live and isolate and study scripture. That's what I did. I spent hours every day reading scripture, mostly the church epistles, learning Greek, researching textual criticism. And my job allowed me to listen to a headset all day. So I listened to an audio version of the Bible. Sometimes, some parts so many times I wore out the tape. So I spent a year like that, learning a lot, spending much time with God in prayer. And afterward, I felt invincible and ready to take on the world. And that's what I was about to do or try. All within a single year, I was married to a woman eight years older than me with three children, just barely out of a terrible dysfunctional marriage. I bought the failing furniture company that I worked for. I bought a house with a mortgage five times what I had been paying in rent. And I ran and taught weekly fellowship in my home. Now, none of this came with tights and a cape, <laughs> but I played the part. Nothing could get to me. Nothing could worry me or get me to confess a doubt or fear. I pushed through every problem that came up and there were a lot of them. Scripture became an escape and an addiction, a tool of control. And my so-called ability to rightly divide scripture fed my pride, gave me the adrenaline rush of battle. And that's how I felt like a soldier in a spiritual battle against the forces of doubt and fear. But I fought hard. 
I never allowed the tiniest crack to form. I was always on guard and ready to defend my position, never resting, never stopped proclaiming the truth, my gospel, that all scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 fits together like a hand in the glove. And as my teacher said, with a mathematical exactness and scientific precision, I twisted rational thought to piece together different gospel accounts to create harmony. I spoke eloquently and convincingly about how prepositions and pluperfect past participles would change your life. And if I couldn't convince you I was right, I could at least leave you with your head spinning. I had answers. I had control. I parsed out with meticulous and tactical detail every position I took. But the more I worked and studied, the less certain I became. And it looked something like this. So that delta x equals the square root of 0.077a squared minus zero, from which we derive the square root of 0.077a squared. And also, the uncertainty in p is equal to the square root of bracket p squared minus bracket p squared, which also equals the square root of h over a squared, which lets us delta x, delta p equals the square root of 0.077a squared, h over a squared, and 1.74 h bar, okay? The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on. <laughs> Great theologian Paul Tillich once wrote, faith is certain insofar as it is an experience of the holy, but faith is uncertain insofar as the infinite to which it is related is received by a finite being. This element of uncertainty in faith cannot be removed. It must be accepted. He also said, faith without doubt is an idolatrous faith. See, at that time, I would have completely rejected Tillich and the idea that I had to accept uncertainty my entire belief system, and more than that, my whole heart, life, and existence itself was built on the idea that there was certainty about God, that scripture was plain and clear and easy to understand. And if I were to accept any uncertainty or doubt or question scripture for one second, all the work, energy, and sacrifice I had made for the better part of a decade was all for nothing. But here's the important part. What I worked for and sacrificed for wasn't scripture itself, nor was it for Jesus or God. But what I poured my heart and life into was an idol, which was my belief system created by my own hands, desperate for approval from a God who mostly felt very far away. My idol was the Bible, and I was serving a small and petty God who was offended easily. And the more I tried to justify and rationalize my teachings, the higher I built my theological edifice, the less stable it became. I was asking questions that didn't have easy answers, and my teachers and ministers couldn't help explain, and so it's no surprise that after pride comes the fall. 
The crisis took several years. I built everything I had and was and hoped to be on an idea which turned out to be my own idea. And I had surrounded my heart with thick walls to protect it against the dishonesty and falseness I used to prop up this idea. I wore a mask of the perfect Christian believer. I never showed weakness or fear or doubt. The idea was too important more than life itself. And if I allowed the tiniest doubt in, I would lose the whole game. And so I was the superhero and I could bear it all. Except that I wasn't and I couldn't. The questions wouldn't go away. I felt again like I could find no answers, but I had a life to live, a, a family, a reputation, a career, a ministry. Things still had to be done, but my heart wasn't there. I was becoming callous and bitter, and the vitality I remembered from childhood was dried up. And like the desperado, I was losing all my highs and lows, and it's funny how the feeling goes away. Life was a battle. And I was a warrior, but I was getting tired. And by the time the Visigoths had overrun the gates, I found myself with no family, no house, no ministry, no friends, only uncertainty, doubt, and hopelessness. I had given up on life and the struggles that began right away so many years ago when I had made such bold steps, they had not faded and only showed signs of getting worse. So I left my home and family, quit the ministry, and eventually I gave up on God. People from Alcoholics Anonymous will talk about hitting rock bottom. St. John of the Cross wrote about the dark night of the soul. A few weeks ago, our friend Mark Bell shared with us about his dark night. King David was in a cave hunted by all. St. Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus. Scripture and life are full of stories of people who in some form or other have come to the end of themselves and enter a period of darkness. When I had my spiritual rock bottom, it was literally a dark night on top of a mountain. I was night hiking and found myself at the end of a ridge with sheer drop-offs on three sides. There was no moon or clouds in the sky, so the stars were vibrant and the constellation Orion was spread out before me. At this point in life, I was full of questions yet again, but this time I had loads and loads of assumptions and beliefs about God and the Bible, and so unpacking those beliefs was a painful, difficult process, yet I felt the compulsion to do it, some stirring in my spirit that wouldn't give me peace. I tried to fall back to my previous positions, but there was a falseness to it. The desperation of a drowning man sink, grabbing onto a sinking boat, and I felt that in my heart. I had questioned my assumptions and the old answers didn't satisfy, so I was left in a state of confusion with no solid ground or feelings of security. The entire world, one vast question, and the only stable light I saw that night was Orion. And in my heart, I made a monumental shift. 
And I spoke a line from Shakespeare's King Lear that was written for the adversarial satanic character named Edmund who would attempt to overthrow the king. The line comes at the beginning of the play before Edmund begins his murderous plot as he looks towards the stars and he commits his life with the line. And I spoke this line in my heart that night on the mountain ridge as I looked, as I pointed my face toward Orion, I said, nature, thou art my goddess. And in so saying, I completely turned my back on God. And it was the best thing I ever did. Karl Barth wrote, what is pleasing to God comes into being when all human righteousness is gone, irretrievably gone, when men are uncertain and lost, when they have abandoned all ethical and religious illusions, and when they have renounced every hope in this world and in this heaven. That's just what I did. I renounced every hope in this world and in this heaven, but why, according to Bart, is it important to abandon hope in this heaven? I don't understand that. Aren't we supposed to have hope in heaven? Doesn't hoping God, doesn't it please God when we have hope in heaven? I, I don't want to belabor the point, but I believe there's a key here to understanding part of my story, and that's in the word this. I had a hope in heaven and a hope in God but it was a hope in this heaven and in this God, in my idea of heaven and my idea of God. And when I renounced God, it was, it was this God that I was renouncing. The God I knew, the God who wanted me to isolate and build walls, the God who stoked my pride and self-righteousness, the God I understood and the God I could control. But what about that God, the holy other. As the great screenwriter Aaron Sorkin wrote the whatever from high atop the thing. As David wrote in Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people see his glory. When I spoke that line on that mountain that night, it was the most insulting and hurtful thing I could think of to say. I wasn't aware of my anger, but I lashed out this God that night. But it was that God that met me and spoke soft words that I couldn't yet hear. I had been angry for years, but I was afraid of my anger. I was afraid of losing my position and afraid that my anger would offend God. And it would have offended this God. He might even have abandoned me and left me with nothing, which he kind of did. But the God who is a consuming fire 
surrounded by clouds and thick darkness, mystery with the heavens, including Orion proclaiming his righteousness? How in the world could I even think it possible to turn my back on that God? I turn my back and there he is too. That God doesn't run from anger or sadness or shame or joy. That God won't leave us even when we leave or neglect him. Forget maybe sometimes for years the joy and warmth we felt when we first believed and we get mired down in the difficulties or pleasures in life. God doesn't leave you even when you question and doubt, especially when you question and doubt. Because in the presence of that God, our uncertainty and doubt is nothing more than a response of humility and a letting go of ego and the need to know, the need to control and make sense out of life. It can feel uncomfortable to be uncertain, to not know. Most of us can't dwell there for long. It's uncomfortable for me to accept being uncertain. It deals a blow to my pride and it's uncomfortable speaking to you about it and admitting publicly how much I don't know. I want to know. I want answers. I don't like the feeling of losing control, but it is my reality. And my nature is a finite being. And somewhere in that story is the comfort of easing the pressure of the need to know. And somewhere in that comfort, I finally learned something about faith. In 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation, healing, or wholeness of your souls. It's been seven years now since that night on the mountain, and it seems like 70. I had torn down the structures of thought and belief system that carried me for 15 years, and now I needed to rebuild. But the thought of going backward was like death. I, I couldn't go back, but didn't know how to move forward or if I should move forward or what that direction that even looked like. I spent a lot of time hiking. I went out dancing. I explored art and creativity. I read books that I never would have touched before. And even though much of this felt self-indulgent and rebellious, I felt a pull towards this darker side of myself. I accepted and owned my limitations and I dwelt in a place of humility, now no longer even asking the questions that plagued me, believing there were no answers or maybe that my questions were just totally off base in the first place. And what I thought I was searching for, security, a sense of self-identity, purpose, that maybe that need to cling to something that made sense was limiting me and causing me to settle for easy answers. I no longer cared if I knew anything about God. I traveled around a lot. I 
even spent time in a hobo village, but I wasn't searching. I lived very much in the moment. And now when I spent time with God, it wasn't out of a desperate quest for answers. I really, I wasn't even thinking much about God or trying to please him or seek his approval. I never read the Bible anymore. I, or even put conscious thought toward prayer that all felt like too heavy and filled with baggage. But for the first time since those early years when I began my journey with God, I felt moved and inspired. And I was beginning again to experience warmth and joy in my soul. I had emptied out my preconceptions and judgments and in that blank space, Christ was moving in. Not a Christ that I could explain, not a Christ I could understand and control, but a Christ I could love. And next I would experience a Christ who could love me back. One of the key verses from my earlier ministry was Colossians 1 verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I believed and taught that Christ in you was all about the individual believer, bestowed sonship and eternal life on the individual. And one thing that, that, that caused it encouraged me to isolate, which I'm prone to do anyway. Problem is that I knew I was misusing this verse. I knew enough Greek to know that the pronoun you in the phrase Christ in you is a plural pronoun, which doesn't show up in the English. The plural you speaks to a community and not to an individual. Our pastor at the sanctuary, Peter, often uses the phrase Christ in y'all. And I happen to know that he ain't from Texas, but he uses that phrase intentionally because it conveys the plural, the great pronoun y'all, which conveys the plural. And in the change from singular to plural, the focus is no longer on an isolated individual, but on a collective body. God was working with me in ways that I had no idea. I had put away the Bible, but I began to open myself up to community. And my faith shifted away from isolating myself with scripture to becoming more open to relationship. I joined the church here at the sanctuary and plugged into this community. And what I found is that the love, work, dedication and heart that I committed to Christ so many years ago and sometimes felt like a one-way street that that love was available to me also. Christ's love, it always felt abstract. I, I searched for it through scripture alone, but it was in community that I finally experienced the grit and gristle of Christ's love in a real way, not from understanding Greek pronouns, but from real relationships with true people. And at the same time, my relationship with scripture shifted. 
John chapter 5, 39 and 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In the past, I studied scripture because I thought that's where I found eternal life. I misused this book. I elevated it above everything else. And by lifting it so high, I separated myself from it. And I made it impossible to enjoy or truly appreciate. <clears throat> Scripture is an amazing gift from God. It testifies to Christ and teaches us about God and life, but it's not a code book we have to struggle to try to break. It breaks us. Is it perfect? I'm not even really sure what that word means but I am sure that it's a human judgment made by imperfect people. Sadly, we don't have original manuscripts. The ones we do have disagree with each other at times. And the temptation is to simply dismiss the Bible. As I said, when first confronted with scripture, it's so full of contradictions, you know, how could that be written by God? Whatever the Bible is or isn't, one thing we know is that the Bible is not God. By trying to make it God, I made myself God because a book is something I can control. I can search through these pages and learn strange languages like some kind of code that will reveal all of life's mysteries or I can go to the person of Jesus and give him my need to understand and control. Jesus says to the Pharisees, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is it about the human experience that makes us want to search for easy answers? Scripture is not easy. There is nothing simple about this book, but that's kind of the point. It testifies about God, and there's nothing simple about God. <clears throat> I find myself now with a different kind of faith. Not a faith in something tangible, like a book, but more like standing on a patch of eternity in my heart. What I've discovered is that this faith is not desperate and anxiety-filled, but more solid. My faith is no longer dependent on anything. I accept the mystery and don't expect God to be a magic eight ball dispensing wisdom and good advice. I accept that Jesus is bigger and better than I ever imagined, and I can again approach and talk about God and scripture always against the backdrop of my flesh with the humility that comes from seeking answers to questions that are truly beyond me. Who is God? Who am I? What am I doing here? If I accept that God is bigger than I thought, 
then I have to also accept that my questions won't be fully answered in this life. Thomas Merton wrote, Indeed, for the man who enters into the black depths of the agonia, it's a depression, religious problems become an unthinkable luxury. He has no time for such indulgences. He is fighting for his life. His being itself is a foundering ship, ready with each breath to plunge into nothingness and yet inexplicably remaining afloat on the void. Questions that have answers seem at such a time to be a cruel mockery of the helpless mind. Religions do not, in fact, simply supply answers to questions. Or at least they do not confine themselves to this until they become degenerate. Salvation is more than the answer to a question. To emerge alive from a disaster is not just the answer to the question, shall I escape? So bring your questions to the foot of the cross. Crucify your desperate, anxiety-filled need for answers. Come to the table to find the answer, Christ. Not a dead law written about in a book, but a living, vital relationship with the person of Jesus. And thank you, Vance. Um, I just, what, what Vance shared this morning, I think is so beautiful and, and a wonderful word at Christmas because I think it's in our character as people to take the word of God and turn it into a rule or a law, the knowledge of good and evil. That's the wild story that we have. And I just, I love this book. I've been blown away by this book. And I think it's authoritative on all matters to which it speaks, like we say, but this book is not God. And God is not content to be a list of rules for you to manipulate and control and uh, govern other people with. God decided uh, to become a living word in you. And so in scripture, you know, there are two ways of knowing things. You know this, right? Um, you can know things less than yourself, uh, like a science or a book. And in the process, you kill it, which is really the story of what we did with Jesus when he came to this world. The other way you can know things is the way a wife knows a husband and in that process you get pregnant. God has decided to know you in that second way, to have a relationship with you so that his word becomes uh, um, alive and manifest in your being. So um, that's a weird benediction. I didn't think this through before I got up here, but, but, but it's the right benediction. Um, according to scripture, you're Mary, you're Mary. And the Holy Spirit wants to uh, take on life in you. May you be impregnated with the very life of God. May you know him as he knows you in Jesus name. All right.